Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June the 10th, 2016, and it is Friday, 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 but I do not have an expert counsel call for you today, uh, or expert counsel show for you today. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna punt that this week, and that gives me just enough calls left in the, the, the kitty for next week, so the council gets an extra week to, start getting me answers uh, to the questions for the next round of stuff. So if you have an expert council question for any of the council members, it would be a good time to get it in. Remember, you send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put TSP expert in the subject line. As I said on Wednesday, we had kind of a disruption, a technical disruption this week, and it prevented me from having the interview with Luciano Nisi on uh, 10 Essentials for Every Hike on Wednesday. And this is a fantastic topic. It's right up the, the core preparedness mindset uh, world, and uh, he's a great guy with an incredible background and a lot of experience, and I wanted to make sure we got him on, so I you know, made some schedule rearrangements and got him on today, and we'll have that interview for you in just a bit. Uh, we are going to talk about hiking. We are going to talk about why you should carry a kit with you wherever, uh, wherever you take a hike. Even if you just think, oh, it's only an hour, you know, uh, we're gonna you're gonna learn about SAR, search and rescue, uh, and I think most people are not really in tune with how that all works and how long it can take you to get you out. If you're, let's say, oh, I don't know, a 30 minute walk from a vehicle uh, down a trail, and you go down with a severe compound fracture, and you can't get up and you can't walk, and someone has to come get you, you think it's you think it's like a 30 minute deal? No, no, it's not. You'll hear actual stories today. And what you should carry, why you should carry it, and how you can file uh, the trip notification plan and all types of stuff like that. We'll have that all for you in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com, where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. And with that, let us take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1805 on TSP Wiki. Alex Shrugged has the following for us today. We have Admiral Nelson saves England, but not himself. I have to the shores of Tripoli, and I have the old man in the mountain. In other news, Hans Christian Andersen is born. He will author children's books such as The Emperor's New Clothes, The Little Mermaid, and The Snow Queen, which will become the Disney movie Frozen. Joseph Smith is born. He will publish the Book of Mormon and found the Church of Latter-day Saints. And Alexis de Tocqueville is born this year. He will tour the United States and publish the book Democracy in America. Uh, I'm not going to read probably the two that are the most historically relevant. Uh, the Shores of Tripoli, certainly, that's the line in the song. That's when this happens. This is the first time we really have a foreign war on foreign soil and raise the American flag, and yet we still don't quite get the objective because peace treaty gets in the way and i should read that because it's very historically important but i have a personal connection to the old mountain the old man of the mountain and that's why i'm going to read this because i was sad the day the old man fell well a survey team traveling through the mountains of new hampshire notices a strangely strangely shaped outcropping 
It is the face of a man. This artifact from the Ice Age can be seen for miles and becomes an inspiration. In years to come, the old man of the mountain will show up on stamps and coins and is a symbol of the Granite State. Nathaniel Hawthorne will write a short story about the Great Stone Face, and the New Hampshire native Daniel Webster will comment, quote, Men hang out their signs indicative of their respective trades. Shoe makers hang out gigantic shoes. Jewelers, a monster watch. And a dentist hangs out a gold tooth. But up in the mountains of New Hampshire, God Almighty has hung out a sign to show that he, that there he makes men. End quote. My take by Alex Shrugged, it pains me to report that the rock formation called the Old Man of the Mountain collapsed in 2003 due to erosion. In the early 20th century, it was noticed that a natural freezing and melting cycle of the seasons was taking its toll. Efforts were made to repair the damage and divert water away from it, but it finally succumbed to the wind and weather. Its collapse so upset citizens that flowers were laid at the base of the cliff where it remains lay. We can only experience the Old Man of the Mountain today through pictures. Um, it's a weird thing to be attached to a rock face. But there's two rock faces that I discovered on, and it's quite timely, um, that I discovered on my trip along the Appalachian Trail. I took my walk from Central PA to New Hampshire. One was this. I remember the first day I ever saw the old man and thought, that is just amazing. It was really amazing how much it looked like the face of a man. Uh, and the other was in the Green Mountain area of Vermont, There's a place called the White Rocks, and you follow some blue blazes. And in our interview today, you'll hear about blue blazes. And you follow the blue blazes on the second very trail, and you go off this little place, and then there are these gorgeous, chalky white rocks. And I think many people every day hike that part of the Green Mountains, and they walk right past that area, and they never see those rocks. And those two will always live in my mind, in my memory, of that time in my life, uh, right out of the military and not attached to anything and trying to find myself and spending time quiet and alone in the wilderness, the old man and the white rocks. The white rocks are still there. The old man has fallen. But many of us, we will continue to remember him. And with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. I want to bring on now Luciano Nisi. Uh, he is uh, the author of a book titled Trail Ready. How to Pack and Prepare for Hiking Emergencies. It's a great book. He's a great guy, very, very experienced. And with that, hey, Luciano, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks, Jack. I appreciate you having me. Man, I'm glad to have you on today. Um, we're going to talk about hiking and specifically the essentials you need to take with you on a hike. I think that's that's really great because I've seen a lot of people out for little day hikes and things that basically are completely unprepared And I know where that leads. I also love the subject. I took a walk one time. I took a walk from central Pennsylvania to New Hampshire to get my head about me uh, on, on the Appalachian Trail. It wasn't a through hike, but it was a pretty long one. And uh, that was many years ago. And I know things have changed since then a great deal. There's a lot more technology out there today. Uh, but before we get into that, can we just kind of talk about your background? Let the audience connect with you a little bit. Uh, tell people kind of like, You know, starting off like school age, what did you want to do when you grew up, and how did you end up in the world that you're in today? Okay, well, that's that's great, Jack. Yeah, well, it sort of started off um, actually probably during early, well, when I was very young. I was I was kind of fascinated with the military. Um, you know, I used to uh, read Sergeant Rock 
uh, comic strip and that sort of thing. And uh, never, never once thought that I would actually be in the military, but I was quite fascinated by that. And, um, and I love the love for the outdoors, that sort of thing. Uh, my actual dream as a kid was to be an airline pilot. Never actually uh, ended up happening. But, um, but so, and then about the age of 12, I suppose, give or take, I, I was sort of introduced to uh, doing some just short hikes with family, that sort of thing. And I, I, I quite loved that. So I um, uh, probably by the time of the age of 14, I became much more motivated and active to, to do a little bit more hiking. And um, I started reading uh, every book on the subject that I could think of. I went to the library and, and I read Backpacker magazine uh, every week. And I was reading every, literally every book on, on mountaineering, backpacking, camping I could get my hands on just to learn from other people uh, that, that were experienced and versed in that. And um, then by the age of 16, I uh, decided I wanted to join the local uh, search and rescue team. And, uh, and they took me on, uh, unbeknown to them that, uh, I don't know if they didn't pay attention to my birth date or what have you, but you weren't supposed to join a search and rescue team until at least you're 19 in Canada, uh, due to the, uh, work safe regulations, et cetera. So to this day, I'm still the, the youngest, uh, team member ever to be on the team. Mm-hmm. And while I was on the team, I became very active in, um, in taking on some roles. Um, I became the equipment officer, so maintain all the equipment we had. Uh, then I moved to uh, the training officer, so I set up all the training for the team for, for that year, um, became the vice president, and then uh, was voted in as president actually the year I was leaving, so I had to decline that. Um, and the year I was leaving, I actually did enter the military, and that would be back in uh, 1990. Um, and I joined the military as a, uh, as a medic, and uh, uh, the, the ultimate goal, though, was to remuster to a specialized trade in the military called a search and rescue technician, and essentially what their role is, is, is you're, that's all you do. You, you parachute, you repel, you dive, you do Lansar, you're a medic, you do everything. Like to me, it was a, a perfect job. Um, but what happens is you have to serve a minimum of four years in the military before you can uh, apply for that. So being a medic was the next best thing. And then all my training in the military uh, kind of dovetailed towards that. Um, I took mountain ops training. I, I did my civil, civilian scuba diving. Uh, I trained twice a day uh, physically. I, I swam at least a minimum half a mile at lunch and did my regular PT in the, in the morning with the, with our unit. And then I worked out in the evening. So all my goals were focused on that trade. Unfortunately, um, due to various things that happen when you're applying for positions, I was shortlisted, but I never quite made it. And I gave it a, essentially a, a six-year term to, to get in. And uh, so then after the six years of my second contract, I decided to get out. And um, I did some other other type of work uh, in various areas in security and law enforcement, and then I got um, then I got hired by the uh, the Canadian Coast Guard uh, hovercraft unit located out in the West Coast here near Vancouver, and um, they were the only uh, Coast Guard unit that had a uh, dive rescue team in Canada, and uh, that was quite intriguing. And uh, so I got on there, and I spent an entire six or correction eight years working. Uh, in the Coast Guard full-time, uh, became very active as a uh, trauma marine first aid instructor um, and, and was also a rescue specialist, uh, rescue diver in that team. So it was quite uh, quite, a, quite an enjoyable and fun fun job. And for various reasons, I left that and, and went into other fields. But um, And what I'm currently doing, and for the last uh, 15 years now, I've been a, uh, I've been a paramedic in, uh, in the Vancouver area. 
and that's so that's my full-time job. Um, during the time that I was in the Coast Guard, I also spent uh, uh, five years with the Air Search and Rescue. And um, so I, had, I ended up getting a, quite a broad spectrum of uh, exposure to both land, SAR, marine, and air. And in addition to my hiking, um, I, I, actually at 16, I also uh, decided to take a mountaineering course, uh, which was a uh, five-day course, and it entitled uh, some rock. And then we did some snow and ice work. And part of that was actually climbing a local volcanic peak in Washington called Mount Baker. So we summited that. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of essentially what, what I guess brought me to uh, writing my book. Um, and, and that's sort of my background, I suppose, in, in that sort of area. Very cool, man. And what what kind of gave you the, the precipitous to actually go ahead and, and write this book? Writing a book takes work, you know. Um, and your book that we're talking about today is called Trail Ready, How to Pack and Prepare for Hiking Emergencies. What made you decide, you know what, I'm going to do this? Because as someone who started a lot of books and only ever finished one, I know it's 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 more work than people think. Well, very, very valid. Um, I um, and Essentially what happened was I wrote another book before that, and it was another self-help type book, a different subject matter completely. But um, I um, after I wrote the first book, um, and it was also an e-book, I decided that, wait a second, there's – there's people out there every day that are hiking. I see them every time I'm on the trail and they're not prepared. And from my years in search and rescue, I uh, realized how many times we did calls and, and, and pulled people out that were ill-equipped. And I started thinking, well, why is that? There's lots of resources out there. Why are people hiking with not a minimum, you know, and typically the 10 essentials, why are people not hiking with those when they're in the backcountry, it's not a lot of weight. It's, it, it covers you in case something happens. So, it's just, so it kind of baffled me a little bit. And I thought, well, wait a second, there is no book out there that actually talks about what to bring on day hikes, typically, what the minimum equipment is, how to use it, why, talks about search and rescue, talks about lost person behavior, what search and rescue will do when you're lost, how to leave trip notification plans, etc. There is no book out there. There's a lot of books on trails and and guiding and there's books on camping elaborate books on mountaineering i know i've read most of them so i'm aware of what's out there but there is actually no book to simplify it and give it to people that who just want to go for a hike that perhaps don't have a lot of experience in it they're not sure where to turn that is essentially where it came from there was a need for it and nothing was available so i thought why not i'll i'll be the guy to write it awesome man so um in addition to your book, you have a blog and you put out a lot of free information as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I use it for a couple of reasons. Um, one of it is to augment some of the information in my book. So essentially, I mean, I could come up with a second edition perhaps and a third edition at some point. Um, but before I get to that point, um, I can, you know, simply the blog provides additional information that perhaps isn't contained in the book. And uh, it also allows people to come in and, and, and check my site on a regular basis to see what's going on. I also have a Facebook site that's dovetailed in with that. But essentially, yeah, it's, it's just free information because I wrote the book for a need. And I want, I want people to be prepared and, and enjoy the outdoors and not get in a situation. And if they do, they've got the knowledge, training, and the equipment to get themselves out. Very cool. Um, so... 
Why did you choose to do this book in like a Kindle electronic type format instead of uh, like a hard copy book? Well, essentially, the, the reasons for that were uh, a couple of them. One of them was um, uh, publishing costs and that sort of thing. And, and because it was a new area for me, I had already done the one book. I knew the, the process to that. Um, so it was much easier to get it uh, edited, approved, and out there. Um, but, but the reason it was actually even more important than that is the fact that it's portable. And most people, even if they're, uh, you know, they, they, most people bring a phone with them when they travel into the backcountry, even if it may, they may not have cell coverage or not. They might carry it just in case as a backup, you know, communication device or et cetera, if they need help. Um, and, the, and the great thing is, is my book can be put on the phone. It doesn't take up a lot of memory. So if they are stuck and they're just like, well, you know, what, what, what do I have to do or what should I do or how many whistle blasts was it again to, to blow and et cetera, they can pull the book up and, and it will give them a sense of security and knowledge that, you know, it'll give them something to read. It'll, it, it can maybe calm them down. They'll give them some knowledge. It'll refresh their memory on what to do. And it's portable. They can have it on their phone, their tablet, their computer. They get in all three devices and, um, and, and it's easy accessible for them anytime they want. Very cool. So, you know, you've written this book because people get lost, people get injured, things like that happen. You've got this incredible background. Have you, with all your time out on the trail and out in the backwoods, ever been lost yourself? Yes, I have. Um, been lost twice. Uh, once was in Ontario a number of years ago. It was, uh, it was fall, quite cool out, and I was hunting. And um, ironically, I was hunting on private property, but it was over 200 acres, and I wasn't familiar with the property. It was very bushy, and um, I got myself disorientated. And uh, I had been using a system of map and compass and paces and tallies, which we use in search and rescue. And it's essentially you you walk so many paces, and it uh, works out to 100 meters, and then you have a, a little bead set, and then you click a bead, and then... So anyway, essentially, uh, it keeps track of your distance also. But even with that, um, and I was also trying to look back, because one thing I say to people, if you're in an unfamiliar area, you need to look behind you once in a while, because when you return, that's what you're going to see, which is often quite different than what you're looking at when you're going forward. Yeah. So it's just a simple thing. But, like, you know, it's something that most people wouldn't do. It's, you have to make a conscious effort of it. So even though I was doing all the right things that I felt I should, I still managed to get disorientated in one turn through the bush where I went through and then went to the left. And you understand, I was pretty much um, uh, dead reckoning and bushwhacking. There was no trail anywhere other than game trails. So I was pretty much on my own to navigate myself, uh, which made it a little more challenging, but I felt quite comfortable with that. So I did realize at one point, um, not too far into being lost, essentially, and disorientated that, that, I, that something was up. It just didn't feel right. It was, I didn't know where I was. And that was an interesting feeling because I'd never been lost before. Um, so the first thing I did, though, was just sit down, to stop where I was, not, not you know, because there's a certain sense of, I suppose, anxiety inside your body saying, you know, it's the, the fleeting thought of, of you got to run somewhere, go somewhere, you got to find your way out because, you know, I was fine. I had, I had some uh, supplies with me, et cetera. There was no issue. I wasn't hurt. There was no reason to go anywhere. I just stopped where I was, and I actually just had a, a, a snack. And just kind of thought about it for a bit. And uh, after about 20 minutes, I did some backtracking. And within half an hour or less, uh, I found where I had made my mistake. And I continued back. So it was a very short-term 
being lost, but it's still the effects of it, in a sense, were still the same psychologically. Uh, they just didn't last very long. And um, the, the second time, it was a number of years later when I moved to, to from Ontario to British Columbia, was um, I was up hiking up a mountain and we were up on the glacier that day and we had a good day, but there was a lot of snow on the trail. So the snow was occluded and the, the markers were, some of them were buried by snow, etc. Well, on the way back, we had uh, taken the wrong turn, followed someone else's tracks, mind you, which we thought was the trail because sure. there wasn't very many people up that time of year. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't using a map and compass because I was on a marked trail, essentially. So I was just kind of, you know, route finding, you know, our way back typically. So we took the wrong trail. I don't know where that person went. I don't know if he went to have a leak or what have you, but we, um, we, we, we ended up being in, in an area that I, <laughs> the real, the real crux was when the stream that we had crossed was supposed to be going from left to right down the mountain was going from right to left. So we're like, okay, we're on the wrong side of the ridge here. So I knew where I was on the mountain in a sense, in essence, but it wasn't that simple because you're dealing with, uh, uh, you know, very turbulent streams and crossings and, and, cliffs and wooded area so we're on the side of a mountain so this isn't just a flat plain this is not something we can just oh we're going to take a bearing and we're going to walk to a road it wasn't like that so we had to backtrack and ironically i used some of my um some of my man tracking skills to look for sign to actually find some of our tracks because we because we were a bit tired we didn't want to turn back when we should have we should have turned back earlier we just thought oh, we'll just carry on a bit more and um that was the first mistake and um once again, we had we could have stayed on the mountain. Would have been a little chilly and uncomfortable, but we could have. I uh, didn't want to. Um, we managed to find our way back, but by the time we got back to the parking lot, it was it was dark. We were using a headlamp on the trail to get the final bit to get back to the vehicle. So once again, we didn't have to spend the night on the mountain. We didn't have to get search and rescue to get us out. We weren't hurt, but uh, yeah, we were definitely lost for a short period of time for a few hours. Yeah, so, um, it can happen to anybody. That's for sure. It happens. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard the term blue blazes like it's an exasperation. Uh, but but on the AT, there's all these different colored blazes, and some are just terminology, and some are actually uh, blazes. AT is Appalachian Trail. Um, and I never really was lost, but I was deep enough off the trail at one point to where you're wondering if you're going the right way. And the secondary trails are marked with blue blazes, and the primary AT is marked with, with white blazes. And we found a secondary trail, and you see that big blue blaze, and I'm like, oh, that's where that exasperation statement comes from, blue blazes, <laughs> because you're like, wow, that's uh, – and I don't know if that's actually where it comes from, but I know that that moment – that was that was the first thing that popped into my head. Oh, that's why people say that. And it is a uh, it's an interesting thing that the the feeling. And I think, you know, I come from a military background myself. Spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I think the more in touch with the reality of what can happen wrong, sometimes the more serious you take being lost or injured because you realize it can be much different than I think a lot of people think. There's some misconceptions. And it makes me think of another concern that people have beyond getting lost, and that is I've never actually been really lost. That was the closest to it I ever was. But I was out several times where you're, you're, you're like doing deep backcountry fishing or something like that, and you really didn't plan to stay the night, and you're catching a lot of fish or you're enjoying yourself and – gee, the darkness just kind of sneaks up on you and it's just foolish to try to navigate your way out in the dark. 
and it makes sense just to stay the night. Have you ever been in that situation, or is that something you've seen people get themselves into trouble because they weren't prepared for it? Well, I've heard stories about that. I haven't actually been in that situation myself. Um, I try to definitely be aware of my, um, you know, military, our search and rescue term uses bingo time, which is our return time, the time you have to get back before, say, it gets dark or what have you. Uh, I do always have a light source on me, but like you say, if you're not on a designated trail, it's very clear. You got to be careful, but even walking back with a, a headlamp or a flashlight or something, because sometimes the markers are not easy to see, what have you, and you can easily just drift off. So in that time, you know, yeah, it would be make more sense to just spend the night. But I have heard stories of people that have had been in a situation like that where they they couldn't get out because uh, dark fall came and nightfall, and they they weren't um, they weren't prepared for that. They just got caught up in, in what they were doing. Just like you say, you're you're having a good time and especially in certain parts in the mountains and that, that you can get darker faster because, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if there's a 5,000 foot peak or something that's, uh, that's facing the West and, and the sun dips over that, well, even though the valleys might still get another hour of light or so you're going to, you're going to be in darkness a lot faster. Yeah, definitely. And I think people can get disoriented more than they realize too. I remember one time as a young guy I was deer hunting and I'm sitting in a tree stand, and we were just at this place on the Gordon Mountain in Pennsylvania. Called the, we call it the second swamp. I have no idea because I never saw the first swamp or the third, but that's just what we called it. And uh, really thick, even in the wintertime when a lot of leaf drop was down and easy to get lost in. And I'm sitting up in a tree, so I've got a better vantage point. I see this guy coming through the woods, and next thing I know, it's probably 30 minutes later, he's coming back around the other side. And I think he thought he was going in a straight line. Like, he was just drifting to one side and kind of getting confused. And when I kind of took a look at him through my binoculars, I can see at this point, like, his face is red, his hat's on backwards, and he's, like, going way faster than he should be. So, in spite of the fact it might scare the deer, I yelled to him, and he was trying to find the road. Well, I could see the road. I could see the road the entire yeah. time. He must have came within 50 feet of the road. And, it, I mean, it, wasn't, oh. it was a dirt road, right? It wasn't, a you know, a, an interstate or something like that, but... He never knew he was near that road, and so he could have ended up spending the night in there 50 feet from the road unless a vehicle came down. I think that's the time of the year there's not a lot of vehicle traffic on that road. So he had no idea that it was right there, and I think it's easier for that to happen to people than they, they, they think it is. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And then also, once you get in that state of that sort of panicky state, you're not thinking clearly. You get tunnel vision, and you 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 know your adrenaline fires up. It, it interferes with your thought processes and your rational thinking. And, and then it just makes it worse and it compounds itself. Cause that's probably what he was feeling. You know, he was yeah. just feeling a panicky state, whether or not, you know, and if he maybe stopped yeah. and, and just sat down for a minute, took a break, have a sip of water or something, look into your surroundings. He might've even seen the road. He may have, if he would have chilled. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you don't know a lot of buck laurel in that area, but still you'd, You'd, you'd like to think that he could have probably he probably would have pulled it off anyway. I'm saying I saved the guy or nothing, but I probably saved him some misery. Oh, uh, I think I think you helped him a lot that day, and <laughs> and I mean he obviously didn't have a map and compass or wasn't doing anything to kind of keep track of his position. Probably, I mean, if he did, you know, even some basic skills, depending on what you're doing, if you take a bearing off a road and you go in and you keep track of yourself, even if you come back and you're not exactly at the same spot. Yeah, you're you're going to be within that within a few hundred feet, either way, and and you'll you'll just come out on the roadway. So, you know, man, but, but you know, it's uh, yeah, it's a lack of maybe 
training or forethought on that on his part. But uh, I'm, I'm quite certain uh, you helped him a lot, even if you didn't get official acknowledgement from, from him that day. Do you, do you solo hike? And can you talk about kind of the differences there when you solo versus you're, you're hiking with, you know, another person or a group of people? Because, I mean, that that kind of puts things in a cult, totally different perspective, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, well, I do a fair bit of solo hiking, mainly because um, I'm not going to wait for someone to do something I want to do, essentially. Uh, I also enjoy a certain aspect of solo hiking, um, the solitude of being up there. Usually, you're, you know, you're running into some people on the trail, depending on the time of year. But I've done some hikes where I started off even not excessively early, maybe 9 o'clock, on, a, on an annual hike of a, of a almost an 8,000-foot peak that we have in our area. That's quite nice. It's got amazing vistas when you're up there. And uh, I didn't see anybody until I was coming down, which was, uh, I think I hit the trail at 8.39. Not, not ex- very early, really, but uh, it's just the way it was. And the access to get to this trail, it took uh, an hour and a half, and you had to be 4x4 up a road, et cetera. So um, I was on that hill by myself for most of the morning. Um, and it was, it was quite nice. So just being in the solitude with nature and, and just being there, you have to be comfortable doing that though. Some people are not, they, they want the comfort of, of a companion with them in a sense of, I suppose, uh, emotional security. Um, there's good and bad things with that. Now, the thing is when you're hiking solo, providing you're prepared and equipped, um, you know, you don't have someone that can say, go for help, I, I suppose, or give you that emotional support or perhaps help you if you're hurt like you know if you cut yourself they can they can apply first aid or what have you um whatever the case may be so you you're, you're a little more higher risk in that sense um the other thing i've seen though i've seen groups of people where i see five or six people and only one person has a pack so now yeah you've got you've got emotional support from people and the other have people to potentially get out but if there's only one pack and everybody's dressed lightly what what's in the pack? Is it lunch? Is it, you know, do you have enough water for the group? Is there any shelter in there that's going to adequately protect the group if they get stuck? So that's the questions that I, I wonder about when I see that is, is that, you know, when, when I see that situation, I, I, it concerns me too, because I think, well, okay, that, or is that the only person that decided to bring a pack today? So that's all his stuff or her stuff. Um, and for all so you it, know, it, in that pack could be a bunch of granola bars and juice boxes, and that's it, right? I mean, that's yeah. And that, I, more often than not, it's just their lunch for the day. Actually, yeah. it's you know, it might be a little sunscreen or maybe a hat or their camera. It, it, it's because I can see by how empty they are often that there's not a lot in there. Um, so it has its own concerning thing. So I find sometimes it's a false sense of security hiking with one or two or even a group, depending on the situation, irregardless, if you're relying on other people to, to, you know, essentially bail you out in your group, that's a bit of a false sense of security. Everybody should, should be prepared individually. Um, and, and then if something happens, perhaps they can, they can take all their equipment or whatever they've brought and use it as, as a group, perhaps, and it might make a better shelter or what have you, if that's the case. But everybody should be prepared to um, be self-sufficient within reason. You know, the 10 essentials should be for individual, not necessarily for a group. If you're planning a longer distance trek, that sort of thing, well, then maybe you might just have a, you know, group first aid kit or that type of thing. But 
otherwise, if it's just a day hike, everybody should pretty much have their own stuff with them, their own their own supplies. Well, yeah, I mean, like another example of that. Let's say you and I go for a hike together, right? And and we bring one pack because I'm I'm a, a slug and I don't feel like carrying one, and you you you're the prepared guy, and, and you go down and you get hurt, right? And we're in a place where we can't get any kind of signal to signal for help. So the solution is it's four miles back, but I'm going to go and I'm going to go get help. Well, there's potential for stuff to go wrong for me on the way back and, and I need supplies and what have you. So now I don't have – so everything I take with me you don't have while you're there injured waiting on recovery. And everything I don't take I don't have and, and you're, you have it and I don't – just. You, you, it makes me think of when we we're, were in the military, you had, you know, a, a, a compression bandage. It was part of your, your load bearing gear and that was for you. So if you went down and you needed it, somebody pulled it off of your equipment and applied it to you. They didn't use theirs on you so that they still had one, you know, that type Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly how the Canadian military was. We did the exact same thing. Everybody had a, had a field trauma dressing uh, taped to the outer part of their backpack strap in case something, if they go down, it's, that's the one that the, the other your buddy uses is the one that's on you. Yeah. Um, you know, same as the combat tourniquets and stuff like that. They use yours. They don't use theirs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the, yeah, uh, that, the, the, the chemical weapon stuff, uh, the atropine injector, right? You don't oh, use absolutely. somebody else because you might need it, right? <laughs> well, that's it. And, and actually, I don't know um, what terminology you guys use, but one term that we use in the Canadian military was one man, one kit. Yeah. And, yeah, and that was it. Like, yeah. And, and that's it. You're responsible for your kit and you're, your equipment and and uh, and and it's because of, for those reasons. Even though the military functions um, in a very cohesive and, and organized fashion, it still relies on the individual elements of those people to be self-sufficient to carry forward. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good principles that were were added to my my knowledge base when I spent my time in the military, for sure. Because I spent a lot of time on dismounted ops. I was in the army. I was in the airborne. But I also, uh, most of the time, I was I was on the ground with the infantry um, and, and dismounted ops with them. And I was like their medic, like for 120 guys. So, you know, I spent my time humping around with my equipment and that sort of thing. So you got to be, you got to be on it for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I think one of the things that, uh, or one of the groups of people that could really benefit from your book and, and your blog are people that don't think they need it. Um I go when we, when we travel. Darcy and I travel like for business or whatever. We always try to break away for a day or two. And one of our favorite things to do is find, you know, a place with some trails where we can take a hike. And then we have a nature center that's a few miles from our house. And it's not that big, but with twisting and turning and ridge lines, it's like over forty miles of trail that they have in it. And these types of places you see, you know, mom and dad and two kids bopping along all over the place, and they almost inevitably have no gear. You know, maybe mom's carrying a half of an Evian bottle or something like that. And I think because it's a place where there's other people, because it's a place with clearly marked trails, they don't feel that they need any gear. And I don't know, I guess if you're going to a park, uh, that there's a little bit of woods between and it's a 100-yard path, you can probably get away with no gear there. But a lot of these places... You know, people are going a couple miles and they, you know, they get interested in things. They take side trails and stuff like that. C- can you talk about why it's important to carry your gear, specifically these 10 essentials, like on all hikes, not just not just through hiking the Pacific Rim or the Appalachian or something like that? Well, absolutely. And, and actually, for the most part, I would say my book is not really designed for those people. Anybody that goes over a day typically has has to have you, you research and or had, you know, 
Yeah, they have to because they got to bring a tent then or a bivy bag. They got to bring a sleeping bag. They got to bring cooking gear. They got to bring food. So those people are already at a different place. My book is essentially written for people that do day hikes. I'm not saying that people that do longer hikes couldn't benefit by, by, by some of my things, such as even the blog. Um, I've got a good one on hydration. Um, I've got one on, on why you should hike with poles, uh, trekking poles. There's, there's, uh, there's some other things that I'm sure those people could benefit from, but essentially it is designed for exactly what you say. It's for the people that virtually have no experience. They, they, they're, they're interested in perhaps nature. They want to go down this path to this waterfall. Um, yeah, it may be a popular trail, um, but it comes back to if something were to happen, and I one of my scenarios is where you know the the, the sprained ankle type scenario. How long is it going to take to get you back? And what if the weather changes, and uh, and you can't get back in time? And then what kind of rescue resources are going to be able to come to your aid? Because a lot of people, like you're saying, they 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 tend to rely on other people. They think, oh, well, there's other people on the trail. Okay, that's great. But what what are those people going to do for you short of going back to get help? from professionals, what are they going to do? You know, are, are they going to get you out? Are they going to, I mean, if it's a minor sprained ankle and it's not that far, you can just, you know, someone can use you as a human crutch. They can hobble you up perhaps. Right. I mean, and then it can be solved that way. It depends on the situation. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't totally agree with you. So, so carrying all your equipment, like, I mean, I, I go on a short hike. That's um, a local grind hike. It's 40 minutes. I take my gear, all of it. I do it for a couple of reasons. I do it because it's good training weight. Um, it also, something happens. It's a very popular trail, but the paramedics aren't hiking up that trail, I can tell you. <laughs> Some of the paramedics are, are on the heavy side. They're not hiking up that. And uh, you can't bring a stretcher up there. So you're still going to have to call search and rescue. If someone broke an ankle on that trail, they're going to have to get search and rescue and get you out. You're regardless. Um, so, you know, I, but a lot of people say to me, oh, are you training for something? It's like, well, no, I'm not training for anything. I just carry this all the time. And then when I do go on the longer hikes, my body's used to it and conditioned for it. Uh, on the flip side of that, I see people that do these short hikes, these grind type hikes, and they're doing it for fitness, which is fantastic. And some of them are even running the trail, um, which, yeah, I mean, increases the risk of potentially getting hurt, but whatever. I mean, we, we all have to live life, right, and, and, and push ourselves. So that's fine. Uh, but I often see people actually hiking with load-bearing vests. And I find that very interesting because why don't they just carry a pack? Why are they wearing a load-bearing vest? It's, it's completely useless. Like if something happens to them, they have no equipment. They just have weight. So that's a very surprising thing because in the military, we always had to carry our packs on, on our, our marches. You know, uh, There was no question. And those packs were fully kitted out with our equipment. We didn't just put stones in there, you know. They were kitted out with our equipment we had to carry. So essentially, if something did happen, well, we had, you know, our sleeping bags. We had whatever we needed. Even if it was down a, a training road on, on the base in the training area or whatever, it didn't matter. We carried actual equipment. We didn't just carry weight. So I do find that an interesting concept when people are training with load-bearing vests and things in, in backcountry. If you're training with a load-bearing vest on a road, that's one thing. But when you're in the backcountry and in the bush, you should be carrying essential equipment with you. And then you're getting both benefits from it. So, Can you kind of talk about, because I think what people have is a big misunderstanding about what happens if you're, if you're injured, if you're stuck and somebody has to come get you, like how that actually happens. Because people would think, well, if I'm only two miles down a trail and I, 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 I twist an ankle to a point where I can't put weight on it or I bust my knee up or something, I'm down and I, I physically can't walk. 
and someone has to come get me, it's not that big a deal, but they're going to be there longer than I think they would expect. Well, absolutely. And, and uh, most recently, I, I, I wrote an article, a blog about uh, someone, uh, I'm a part of this uh, Facebook hiking group. Basically, it's not people necessarily that hike together, but it's a place to share stories about local trails and photos and experiences with other people that are in the same activity. Uh, this lady posted a a photograph of an x-ray from her, her ankle that uh, got she fractured on a recent trail. This trail was uh, less than an hour from the parking lot, very popular area. Uh, she was 10 minutes from this lake, and her, her ankle went over, and she broke it. Um, fortunately, she was in an area with cell coverage. Fortunately, the search and rescue team was able to get to her quickly. It was daytime. Um, but it took them four hours to get her out. They had to use a stretcher. They had to use ropes due to the type of train they were in. And uh, they did a fantastic job. And, and for what I consider, I was actually, I served on that team. That was the search and rescue team I served on many years ago. Um, they did that very quickly because four hours from time of call to getting her out on a road, uh, was actually fast. And yet, um, her distance from the parking lot was less than an hour. Hmm. So, you know, and, and the fracture she had, as she posted, which is on my blog, she gave me permission to use the x-ray, um, was two plates and nine screws. So she did a pretty serious injury and she learned a lot. She was, I would say, a moderately experienced hiker as far as the type of hiking she did, but she wasn't prepared for that. So she learned a lot from that actually for herself. And she wanted to share that with the, with the hiking people because to basically express that, Hey, look, this is what happened. It can happen anytime. And, and, and that just validated even more the type of things that I'm trying to, to message. I'm trying to send out to people that, yeah, it can happen to you. It's happening to some people are getting hurt. Not not every day, not every hike, but they are. So you just got to be ready for it. That's well, probably is every day somewhere. You know, it's the the the, the drinking song. It's five o'clock somewhere, right? Well, yeah. someone's down somewhere. I mean, I, I've yeah. seen it enough to know that it happens. And um, you know, kind of a, 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 another thing there though. Can you kind of just talk about like? What actually what what what's going around in the background? Let's say it's not just two miles down. Let's say it's a a, a complicated, not an impossible, not a highly dangerous, but a somewhat complicated extraction. It, it's not like if somebody breaks in my house and I dial nine one one, there's a cop coming pretty quick, and he's a professional, he's trained, he's on the clock, he's being paid, he's on shift. Like SAR teams aren't like firemen that are sitting you know, working 24 on, 24 off, right? That's a totally different world. Well, that's absolutely it. Um, very, I mean, other than the military in Canada, uh, which is the only professional search and rescue that are on paid, on call, everybody else is made up of volunteers. Uh, the volunteers are very passionate. They take, you know, they're very passionate about their training. They're taking certified courses on cliff rescue and over-the-bank rescue and search techniques and, and all that, and they're getting donated for all their equipment, essentially they're very well equipped, uh, motivated, they're on pagers, etc. However, they have jobs and lives. So even if they're on a call out, they may be with their family. So their pager goes off or their phone rings or whatever system they have, they have to stop what they're doing or, you know, uh, drop their family off, whatever. They have to get to the search and rescue base, perhaps, uh, pick up a vehicle, uh, organize, liaison with, say, in our, in, in Canada anyway, they the first point of contact is typically the police because it turns into a missing person. 
who then contact search and rescue. So they, um, they dovetail with them. They try to get information on where the person went, if the person left any information. You know, what are they wearing? What's the vehicle? Where did they park? Do they give routing information? Let's say they have all that. Let's say it was the person was very thoughtful in that way and, and prepared in the sense that they left a trip notification plan. So now they have to drive to the site, which may take a couple hours. So you might be already two hours into it before you reach the trailhead, depending on where they are. Then they have to hike in. Uh, they may or may not have access to a helicopter to assist in their search, depending on you know resources, depending on area, depending on a lot of things. So let's assume they don't have a helicopter or say the weather's down, they can't fly anyway. So they've got to hike in. Now let's say that their person's not that far. Let's say they're a couple hours in on a moderate trail. Um, even something where they're not having fallen down a cliff or they're down, you know, someplace very difficult, even on just a regular trail, a couple hours in, um, you're, you're looking at, I mean, already now we're looking at what plus four hours, maybe. So now you've got to, you stabilize them, which may, it might not take that long. It might only take half an hour, but they've got to do some things, get them in a stretcher, what have you. And now the return trip, if it took them two hours to hike in, you can add at least a minimum of an hour to that, possibly two if you've got a stretcher, depending on whether you've got a wheel below it and whether you can use the wheel. If you've got to carry that person, which usually takes at least minimum six people, usually they want to use more because it's, it's, it's fatiguing and difficult. So you can double that. Um, so what we're at three, seven hours right now before they get back to the road, and then two hours drive back, nine hours before they can get to medical aid. And depending and on the injury, I mean, here's the thing: if you're if you're immobile enough for all of that to have to happen, you're probably not really comfortable and feeling okay. No. So unless they send up, uh, say in, in our area anyway, an advanced life support paramedic that can give morphine or something, you're going to be in pain the whole time. On top of that. Uh, they may have the, the team may have access to Entinox or something like that, but uh, once again, they are typically not going to carry that with them, just searching for somebody. So the soonest they get that is probably back to the uh, roadway, which is then probably where an ambulance would be waiting anyway. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's you know, and that's that's a, that would I would say that's not a complicated one. If they have to get into and add on to. Um, uh, lowering systems with ropes and that sort of thing off a cliff. Say the person slipped off an embankment of some type and they can't access them and they've got to raise them or lower them. That takes time to set up. Uh, you've got to deal with darkness. Um, there's other factors, you know. Uh, the chances are these things, they don't happen in the morning. They happen in the late afternoon and evening, these injuries, typically. So now you're dealing with nightfall, which, which complicates everything. Now, if the person has no signaling device, no light, no no shelter, no way of, no food, you're aggravating that now. They could be getting into hypothermia, all kinds of things, which are amplified beyond the injury itself. So a simple sprained or fractured ankle that makes a person immobile, that could be very complex and very, could turn into quite a life-threatening potential situation based on the environment. You know, I'm going by the premise that this is happening in summertime, Add winter or fall into that. A lot of people go snowshoeing, hiking in the, in the winter, what have you. It suddenly gets very, very much more complicated, and things get much more severe based on that. I yeah, I completely agree. I I, I think that people really underestimate 
what they need. Let's kind of maybe talk about another thing I think people have an over-reliance on, and that's technology, specifically cell phones. Um, people just think, well, if something happens, I'll just use my cell phone. And I've been in a lot of places that you just don't have signal. And places that you wouldn't think you wouldn't have signal, this this park that I was talking about that's just a few miles from my house. I mean, I'm kind of rural, but I'm really like 20 minutes from Fort Worth if there's no traffic um, and mm-hmm. get the lights right. But this area, there's just not a lot of call for AT&T or Verizon to be putting up towers out there. And there's quite a few places where there's just no signal. Now, to be fair, I, if something happened and I was there with my wife, one of us could go 150 yards and probably grab a bar and, and be able to make a call. But that's not always the case. And isn't that something that people get themselves into trouble with? Well, very much so because we're we're so used to using phones in the urban areas, typically. Um, I mean, you live in a more rural area, you might be used to a little spotty coverage. But a lot of the people that are getting in trouble – are in urban areas where, at, at, a, at a, you know, they can they can text, they can phone, they can at a, at a split second they can have a voice or a person or an emergency resource or something at the other end, and they get very comfortable with that that this is their little rescue device. Well, once they step into the backcountry, um, they often don't think about that because they're so used to it and they may not even check until they need it. So this reliance on, uh, say, cell phones and that sort of thing is is a very dangerous area to come in because, once again, it's similar to the reliance of having a person with you. That person is only valuable if they have equipment and expertise to aid in you. Other than that, there's simply emotional support or a person that can go for help, which is still useful, but you're over-relying on something that is you shouldn't be. You know, The cell phone... If, yeah, if a person can get to a higher ground, maybe they can get get a signal. But if you're stuck somewhere on a trail, are you going to send the person up to higher ground to call for help, or are you going to send them down to the vehicle? And what if you send them up and they don't get a signal? Now they're twice as far from the vehicle, so they're probably going to send them back down anyway. So essentially, you've got your communication system isn't isn't very effective, and you shouldn't be relying on it at all. That that. I'm not saying necessarily don't carry a phone with you as a backup device. It might be useful, providing it's not, you know. If it works, use heavy. it. No, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like, you know, oh, throw your phone away. But don't no. Don't see it as guaranteed uh, by a no. long shot. No, no. No, there's definitely things, other things, and specifically things that I carry. There's two particular types of devices that I that are available that do not rely on cell phone coverage. They rely on the search and rescue satellites, and those are the types of things that you should be carrying with you if you're in any area. There's no cell phone coverage, period. I don't care if you're experienced or you're just new. Um, you should, should keep it's just like an insurance policy, uh, and, and you should have it. The, the thought of it not happening to you isn't valid. It can happen to you. It will happen to you eventually if you keep hiking and, and going in the backcountry enough. Something will happen to you. So that's the way I look at it. Um. Another thing that I think people really need to think about is you, you call it on I read on your blog a trip notification plan, and this was something when I used to do long distance hiking, you know, multi day hikes back before technology. You you had to do this, have some sort of a, a notification plan, let people know I've reached a certain location. And back then, I mean, it was like walking into town and making a call with a payphone. There's there's better ways to do that now, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, um, I in my book, I, I still have a template one that you can print off, and it and it leaves you know name for of each person, um, description of route, uh, return time, 
um, your vehicle, equipment carry, that sort of thing. But there's one that's available online. There's a link on my um, on my book uh, that you can you can click on, and it's online. And what you do once you fill it out, you can email it to a number of people. So you, you can instantly get that information to somebody. Hopefully you've been in contact with them. There's another way to say, hey, listen, I'm going on a hike. I'm sending you a trip notification plan by email. So it'll be in your inbox. So if something happens, just, you know, check the return time and stuff. And then if something happens, just give it to the search and rescue, what have you, and they'll know what's going on, right? Um, but the great thing about that, too, is, is oftentimes when I'm just driving around, I always have my pack and my hiking boots in my car because if I want to go on a last-minute hike, well, before I hit and get out of cell phone range, I can do this thing on my phone. It's got drop-down boxes, et cetera. You can fill it in, and you can email it, and, and you're good, right? So someone's got that information, right? There's no excuses for not doing it anymore. Um, you, you know, like even using the written form is fine. If you have someone at home, it's fine. You can, you can print it off, whatever you fill it out. But like I said, the email version, we have the technology now. It's available, and, and you can just fire it off. And, and then at the end, then you're covered. Because that is actually one of the most valuable things for search and rescue. They need to start their search from your last known position. And that'll typically be your vehicle, your trailhead is. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, imagine you've gone on like a, a five-day, a five-day long hike. Mm-hmm. And you, the, the, all that's known is you started here and you were going there and you're covering, I don't know, 20 miles a day. That's 100 miles. Okay? Yep. That's a lot of freaking places to look for you, and a lot of times if there's something wrong, you're not like laying in the middle of the trail. You're somewhere off to the side. Maybe you got down and you know went and did some exploring, and it felt like got hurt or something like that. Like it's it's almost impossible to find somebody in that situation. But if they know the last time you checked in was here, you were going there, you missed your check in, then there's a there's a much more targeted area that they can go look for you at. Well, absolutely, and, and actually, there's there's probably a, a couple things there that with our technology today that I would recommend. If I was doing a long hike like that, there's there's a device called a Spot Messenger. Okay, that's one device. There's another. There's a couple other devices that do the same principle. What they do is they send off signals to a satellite system and a mapping that gets emailed, or a person can log in and click on, and they can see exactly where you are, providing the unit has. Uh, clear coverage to the satellites. Essentially, it's dropping electronic breadcrumbs of your route. The, the, the spot actually has, a, has some other features, too, which are really useful, and it can hit, you can have an OK button. So you can push the button, and it'll fire off a signal and say, I'm OK, you can have your own little message in there, I'm OK, I'm doing fine. It can also have another message saying help, which means, you know, I've, I've, I've stuck, I'm, I'm hurt, um, or, or what have you, whatever personal message you put in but it's not a true emergency yet. Then you have the SOS button where it actually contacts search and rescue directly through the satellite system and they're dispatched without the third party. Okay. So there's a couple of good things about that. If I was going on a long trek, I would have mine activated. I have a spot. I've used it in the past. I think they're great. Um, the one thing I find that is a detriment though, is there's a fairly high cost uh, subscription fee. I find if you're not using it regularly, it's approximately 200 US um, a, a year, and that's not even for the tracking part. I think that's just for the search and rescue and the messaging. So you might be looking at $250 a year just to have this thing there. Well, most people don't want to spend that because, of course, it's not going to happen to them, right? Uh, so that's the thing. If, if you're going to use it on a longer hike, I think it'd be definitely a benefit. 
Um, the other disadvantage of that particular unit is it only puts out 0.5 watts of output power, which means sometimes it, it won't acquire a signal to the satellite to tell you where you are or get your message out. Okay. There's another device that doesn't provide tracking, um, but is a emergency beacon. It's an EPIRB, emergency position indicating radio beacon. There's different styles of those. There's the, there's uh, essentially they were designed that type is designed for the marine environment. They're used on ships. If a ship goes down, every ship, the larger size and such, they're actually uh, they float away from the ship and they float on the surface and they they deploy that signal for search and rescue. Um, the, the personal versions are called PLBs or personal locator beacons. They're the same technology, they're the same frequency. They just they they named them that so that way they're identified. So search and rescue know they're an individual device versus a, on a ship, because it's obviously a bit different if, if search and rescue are looking for a ship or an airplane than they are looking for a person. So and and these devices, um, you're supposed to register them. Like it's basically a requirement that you register them to you, and uh, so it's an individual thing. And it's important that the ones you get, most of the new ones are all within the same lines now, the same technology, but they're 406 megahertz, um, and they're GPS-enabled, which means it's actually sending out your GPS coordinates. So it's within 100 meters or less of your location, or 330 feet of your location. Okay, So that's very important because back in the old days, the old the old system transmitting on 121.5, which is the uh, medium frequency, essentially you could have a 240 square foot mile area radius. And that's what the airplanes were carrying is the ELTs, emergency locator uh, transmitter beacons. Well, those created a huge search area if an aircraft went down. So now with the new technology, with this, with the 406 and the GPS enabled, whether it's on an aircraft, a ship, or a personal one, and the, the personal ones, are, the small ones are the size of a cigarette pack. They're tiny. They're lightweight, they're waterproof, uh, they can't turn on accidentally, and um, they'll transmit, uh, I believe, for it's up to like two days before the battery dies. And the good thing about those versus, say, the spot, as far as an emergency device, is the, the PLBs and the EPIRBs, they transmit at 5 watts of output power, which is, is you know, I guess that's what, 10 times that of the spot, give or take. Um, so if there's a, a chance of a signal being not quite making it to the satellites, these ones will pretty much blast through. They're, they're much more reliable if you get hurt. Uh, I think some of the newer ones I've seen, actually, you can send messages on. But once again, you need a subscription to that. So some people are not willing to pay for something that they think that they're not really going to use. But at a minimum, you should carry one of these in addition to your trip notification plan. And you should have signal devices, a signal mirror, uh, flares or smoke and, and, and visual aids. You should have different types of signaling devices because as the search aircraft or the search people come in your area, um, you need to signal them. Because like I said, if you're down a, off the trail, if you've fallen off the trail, you've, you've, you've activated your beacon, they know you're there, but you're just a speck. And if you can't move, you can't even get up, you've got to do something. You've got to fire a flare, you've got to pop some smoke, you've got to use your signal mirror, you've got to blow your whistle... You've got to do something to attract attention to pinpoint you. Otherwise, they could spend hours and they're, they're, they could be within a few hundred feet of you and not know where you are because your voice doesn't carry very well. So you need to find other devices. So essentially, I, I look at it as, as a, a, a system versus just one individual device, right? You don't want just signaling equipment, just a trip notification plan, or just the PLB. You want them all together. They work together 
to to get your to get you out of that situation. Yeah, two is one and one is none. Three is for me, four right. is more, and five keeps you alive. I mean, that's <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know, your, your your survival gear is separate. That's a separate system to your thing. That's to keep you alive until they get there. I mean, my idea of survival. You know what that is? Is that's drinking a beer at ten o'clock that night, talking about the story after the search and rescue text got me out of there. That's the story. Yeah. Not spending the night on the mountain. Yeah. You know, I want to get out of there. I don't like if I have to spend the night. Fine, but I'm not on a camping trip. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> if I'm stuck, something's wrong, right? I'm either it got dark, I got lost, or I got hurt. One of those things. And I'm like, okay, I got to hunker down and suck this one up and do it. But it's not exactly the plan, right? That's not exactly what I was planning that day. I was planning on being back home that night if it was a day hike. Let's talk about some other essential gear and kind of your thoughts on, on what people should be carrying. I mean, water's the one I see all the time. I see people out in, like, we were out in Vegas a couple of years ago at Chacho. We took a hike in this, it was a really beautiful canyon area. But, you know, the, the humidity's like 0.1% or something like that. And it's like 90 degrees. But it, if you're from, you know, humid areas like I am, it doesn't feel hot. Uh, cold weather too, and then people aren't drinking. And I think that that's, that leads for potential because I don't know how many injuries you've seen in the, in the world, but the number one injury I've actually seen happen to people is heat injuries or, you know, dehydration injuries. And I've never seen anybody, I know they say you can drink too much water, but I've never seen anybody drink too much water and then like go down. But I've seen the other side of it, and I always see, again, mom, dad, the kid's bopping along, mom's got a half of a, a bottle of water from the convenience store, you know, and they're out in these environments. So what do you look at as, you know, reasonable for carrying water? I pretty much, I use a Camelback mule on my day trips. I have a three liter Camelback and I carry a metal water bottle because there's other things you can do with that metal water bottle. But like, to me, that's kind of like a minimum because that way you're drinking a lot, but you're drinking frequently. Or, I mean, a little frequently very often. I don't know how I'm trying to say right. Yeah, I know exactly. Uh, drink a little, drink often is what I sort of go with is, is the principle is that, um, depending on your activity and your exertion too, depending on the time of year, like you're staying in an area that's, that's very arid and deserty and hot where you're not even perspiring. It's that hot, which is, is dangerous because you can't, you're not getting the visual cue that you're sweating. Um, and then of course, if you, once you start getting thirsty, you're already in this, getting into this state of dehydration. So, um, you need to drink a little, drink often, and be aware of how much you should be drinking based on your activity and or temperature. Um, you mentioned cold. People often don't drink enough in the cold because the body and the, the clothing they're wearing, whether they're cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, or just hiking, they're, it's absorbing the moisture, perhaps, and they're not even thinking about it. And being cold, people, for some reason, don't drink as much. They think of hot liquids as comfort and that sort of thing, a tea. But as far as just drinking water and, uh, and hydrate, hydrating themselves, they often don't do it. Um, you know, if you're also at altitude, if you're getting above um, 3,000 feet, um, well, probably even higher for 5,000 feet, but even when you're getting up to 3,000 feet or higher, you need to start drinking more just based on the altitude. Um, so in any type of a hike where you're going, you should be drinking about a liter an hour minimum, right? To keep yourself hydrated. You should also have, uh, as an extra, you should have mixed that with either oral rehydration salts that can be purchased at, uh, the local drugstores, that sort of thing. Essentially they're, um, they're electrolytes in a powder form or you can get them in a liquid form. Um, sometimes what I'll do is, is I'll, I'll get a, uh, low sugar type, uh, like a G2 Gatorade and I'll carry one of those and then have my water and, uh, I'll drink, you know, maybe a half of the Gatorade and then have some water for a bit. And then I'll drink some more Gatorade because that's giving me, uh, the extra uh, salts and potassium because 
essentially there's three types of heat related injuries, right? There, there's, there's heat exhaustion, heat cramps and heat stroke. Okay. So the heat cramps are often caused by uh, an imbalance of your electrolytes. Uh, heat exhaustion is, is um, your body's uh, essentially not getting enough water, right? So the dehydration state and, um, and heat stroke is the system shut down. It's overheating and you need to cool the person. Right, they're they're just they're burning up. Basically, like they're in a bad fever. Uh, that's life threatening. Or right? that's where you get the person in the stream, that type of thing. But in in any case, they're progressive, and a person can develop from heat cramps to heat exhaustion to heat stroke if if they're not if they're not checked. Um, and the dangers with heat exhaustion is very similar to hypothermia in some ways. Is that the person may not quite be aware of it until it's already fairly onset. They might be feeling a little fatigue. They might get a headache. Uh, the pulse might be going up. You know, they're feeling woozy. They don't really even know what's going on. And then now to treat them, it doesn't instantly happen. No people aren't carrying IVs on them and that sort of thing. So it takes time to get them. They'll have to be put in the shade. They'll have to be cooled off. They'll have to be given fluids. It's preventable, you know. Um, you just got to drink drink enough. And, and, and if you're in an area that you may not be sure of the water sources, uh, they have new um, water bottles that have built-in filtration systems where you just put the water in and it filters it right there. So you don't even have to wait, you know, for tablets and that sort of thing. Um, you can carry pumps if you're on longer trips to filter water if you're concerned. If not, if you're in a mountainous area, the water may be very safe. So just keep keep your water bottles filled up. But but definitely bring enough. Like if you know there's water sources that are readily available, fine. You, but if you're not sure, make sure you have the water with you. Very, very important. Yeah, definitely. Another thing that I think you, you've touched on here is clothing. And I don't want to because that could be a whole show just on emergency gear and clothing. But being able to keep warm and being able to keep dry. Um, where I live, if you're freezing, you went out in January. I mean, you hike mountains, you can get stocked in like that on an 85 degree day. Here, one of the big concerns is, is being really wet. And like one of the things that I always carry, we I don't know if you've ever looked at this product. It's called Frog Togs. Um, it's a waterproof, very lightweight, um, I don't know if it's a canvas, I don't know what it is, but it's very, very lightweight, very, very rugged. Um, they make a, uh, like a motorcycle version they call toad skin that's a little thicker. Uh, but these fold up, very, very compact, very lightweight, and they keep you bone dry. And, you know, I even say it's not that you're, you're going to get really cold, but, you know, 50 degrees is one thing, 40 degrees with blowing cold rain is another and being able to stay dry, in addition to being able to stay warm, is, is hugely important. Well, absolutely. It doesn't matter what hike uh, I'm on. I always carry a, a mountain park. I, I typically carry a mountain park that's a, a two-layer Gore-Tex. That's what I use. It's waterproof with a breathable component. Um, brings me back to a quick memory of a story. I went up on one of my annual hikes uh, that I do, the, the one where you have to 4x4 four four up, that sort of thing. And I was up on the top of the summit, and, uh, and a group of younger hikers showed up. I think there were three or four of them. Um, they were in their very early twenties and dressed in shorts because the temperatures were, um, well, it was probably 25. So it'd be like close to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, once we hit the ridge, wind picked up a bit, still sun was shining. Then all of a sudden there was some clouds in the area. They, they enveloped the summit. The temperature dropped to, uh, probably, uh, 38, 39 degrees. Wind picked up. And, uh, you know, I was zipping on my pants, putting my toque on, my gloves, and my parka. And they didn't have anything. They had their lunch. <laughs> so, you know, and they were hiking more than I had. Like, they had a lot more hikes under their belt in that last two months than I had the whole year. 
So, so when people say experienced, well, experienced in what? Experienced in hiking or carrying the right equipment and being experienced? They're not exactly the same thing. Yeah, experience will often lead you to being prepared, but not in the most comfortable way possible. So what, what I mean correct. by that is I bet you those guys carry additional clothing now. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it, especially seeing me put my stuff on and being in that situation. Who knows? Maybe they had never been in that situation That's in their hikes, right? Yeah. It's, it's, they've either gone out when they knew it was going to be cold and they were prepared for that, or they've gone out when it's like a beautiful 75-degree day and they were prepared for that, and they never had one switch over to the other really quickly on them. And, and right. once you go through something that makes you miserable – then you tend to be prepared for it. I mean, it makes me think we had these huge hailstorms this year in Texas. And the first ones that came in, people were like, eh, they always say that. And I mean, insurance companies are crying. It looks like ball peens. Somebody went berserk, like 50,000 people went berserk wow. with hammers all over. The next storm that comes in, people are pulling their cars under overpass. They have people on the news. One guy like strapped a mattress to his truck, you know, and it's like, because they saw it, because they went through it, all of a sudden, now it's important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what about shelter, yeah, sure. right? Because, I mean, when you, when you say – I've looked at your book and you say shelter, but I haven't had the time to read it yet. Um, and that's obviously one of your, your five primary survival needs. And you say you carry your gear all the time. Are you carrying, like, a full-on backpacking tent? What, you know, how do you address it? Just a car? What no, do you do? I'm not, I'm not carrying a shelter. The two uh, aspects I carry is uh, there's an um, uh, emergency sleeping bag, it's called. And it's essentially made of that space-age, you know, emergency blanket material. But the benefit behind this one is you can climb into it, which creates essentially a heat vapor barrier. So it's, it's very useful, but not useful if you're – you don't want to go into it and you don't want to sweat in this thing. And you potentially could if it was too warm out but it's to maintain and keep your heat, right? You just wrap yourself up in this sort of mummy bag, sleeping bag. So that's for your heat retention. For the shelter, what I carry is a, it's sort of a, a an orange tube type tent uh, system, basically. And uh, it's made of an orange heavy duty kind of plastic. And uh, I always have cordage with me. So I, you can essentially, if you can hang it, you can, uh, you can you can you can have it up like a similar like a tent with an opening on either end, or if you're not, I mean you can just slip your um, your your emergency sleeping bag inside it, and you can use it so, so, sort of like a baby bag. It also doubles as an aerial signal because of the color. It's blaze orange, so um, if if an aircraft's flying over and and say you have, you you're not paying attention, you've had a, you've fallen asleep, maybe had a nap. Um, it's a visual aid that way, also for ground searchers, right? So it, it, it's, it's double purpose. Uh, it's, a, it's a signal device and it's a shelter. It's very lightweight. Um, I, you know, I don't carry a tent and that sort of thing. I don't want to turn, turn it into a 40-pound pack, but I want something that will be useful um, in, in, you know, in all different terms of weather, whether it be snow or summer, and both of them are very good that way because they're waterproof and uh, you, know, you can be in a torrential downpour and you can be kept dry with, with both of them, right? Very cool. Well, uh, you want to tell folks how they can get your book, where they can read more on your blog and, and what have you? Yeah, for sure. So um, I've, I've got my own personal website, and that's uh, simply uh, www.nisi-ebooks.com. So it's uh, nisi-ebooks.com. And, um, and that's my main website. And from there, uh, I have links to my blog, uh, and I have uh, various things on there. I have some videos I've done on signaling equipment, uh, and some other articles I've written and been a part of. 
for my books. Um, there's also a link to my um, my Facebook uh, sites that are that are connected to my uh, both books. Um, but that's that's the, the best way. There, I mean, if if a person you know just googled my name, it would it would bring up a, a vast array of my books and and that sort of thing. Um, my book is actually if you click on the link and you want to purchase the book. Um, it links to Amazon currently. It's just the site I decided to pick. It's very a common, popular one. And the one thing about Amazon, if you download the book, you then click on what, what devices you want to use it on. I guess there's a, a conversion program or whatever they do, and, and that way you can use it on multiple devices with one download. You don't need to download my book in different formats. You download it once, and then you can use it on different devices. But my book is available from chapters. It's available from 24 that I know of, 24 different website or book sites, including it's been converted to multiple languages too. So if you can't speak English and you can only speak Portuguese, it may be available in that format also. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us today, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today, and uh, thank you for your service as well. Well, I appreciate that, and you as well. Um, uh, a fellow, fellow military brother there, for sure. And I appreciate uh, having the chance to uh, to chat with you about this, and hopefully this uh you know, people are able to get some more information to just be out there and enjoy enjoy the nature and outdoors and just be safe about it. And if they get stuck, it, it'll be another sense of resources for them to get out. That's essentially why it's there, right? Just to help people. Well, I appreciate it again. And uh, again, folks, the uh, website is uh, nisi-ebooks.com. There will be links in today's show notes so you can hook up Luciano on his website. And uh should mention that the book is uh, very affordable. Is it, what was it? I think it's two ninety nine. Two nine nine, yeah, and some of the websites even uh, offer discounts. I found they kind of do their own thing, so uh, I've seen it as low as a dollar seventy nine. So, pretty much less than a cup of coffee. So yeah, definitely will be something you guys want to pick up if you enjoyed today's show. And again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jack. All right, well that was a great interview. Uh, I want to let you guys know I did a little extracurricular activity, and I did not go through everything in Luciano's book, and certain things I didn't go look for because I think they're highly personal, like what food you're going to carry or something like that. But uh, if you go to today's show notes, right after Granddaddy's Gun Club in the list of resources, you'll see a great big long list of stuff. You'll see the Camelback Mule. And these are all links on Amazon to see what I what, what I personally recommend for these needs. The three liter Camelback Mule that is my go to day pack. I, I love that pack. Um, metal water bottle, uh, one that I particularly like. It's got a few more ounces of space in it. Life straw water filter. That's something I'm a big believer in. Always having that in your pack. Um, some oral rehydration salts. I actually looked those up because I hadn't been carrying those, and I, I'm going to start doing that now. I think that's a good idea. Frog togs I mentioned. I have uh, the, the frog tog suit, so you can – and there's all different options with that and all different colors and stuff, but just so you know what I'm talking about. Um, I have my ferro rod that I carry on my keychains all the time. It's a two-piece – uh, ferro rod that has a screw on outside that also has a striker on it. Uh, I've carried it for a very long time. It allows you to cram a little bit of tinder up in there. I also carry a little side uh, like pill case that I keep tinder in, but uh, my particular ferro rod is there. I'm a big believer in flashlights. Two is one, one is none, definitely. Uh, for hiking, I, I love mag lights, guys. I just They work. They're robust. I know they're not the super-duper tactical, whatever, but they always work. They never fail. They're good on battery life, and I carry a 2C cell uh, mag light in my pack. It's a little heavier than maybe you'd think you would need, but again, I've got a blunt instrument uh, as well, and I'm not going to be walking around with you know a, a 3D cell uh, mag light in that situation. And 
Um, the headlight that I most recommend, it's uh, made by Teswell. Uh, it's a T6, and it's probably the best headlight out there. It is rechargeable, but the batteries actually can be substituted with non-rechargeable batteries as well. Um, we talked about shelter a little bit. I've got the emergency sleeping bag and tube tent uh, that, that uh, Luciano mentioned. But my go-to uh, hiking shelter is uh, the Eclipse 2 backpacking hammock. So it can usually use like a hammock or it can be buttoned up like a tent. And that keeps you off the ground, that keeps you warm, that keeps you dry. It's multifunctional. It's very compact. It's very lightweight. Uh, I've got an emergency whistle and signal mirror. Uh, I've got two compasses. Uh, one is uh, the 3H Tritium military compass. It's basically the same thing our soldiers carry. Um, I'll trust my life to a cheap compass when I have no alternative uh, but to do so. Uh, so... I do have the best chief compass I found. It's like 15 bucks versus like 60 bucks for the, the, the military grade one. Um, but it, the, the cheap one's pretty good. Uh, but it, to me, that's like a critical piece of gear. And I don't want a failure. And I want something I'm very familiar with. And, and coming out of the military, I'm very familiar with the military issue compasses. And uh, this one is, well, I guess, I think it's what they're issuing them now. It's a little different than what they had back in the day when I was in. But it's very similar in form and function. And uh, so I have both of those. Um, I carry empty knives almost exclusively now, uh, but I know not everybody's going to spend the money. I do have a link in the show notes to the empty uh, knives Genesis 2 neck knife, which is a, a, uh, a great neck knife and a great EDC knife. It's a $99 knife. But for being off in the trail, what you want is you know about a 4-inch blade uh, belt knife or folding knife. And the two... Off-the-shelf, mass-produced knives that I can recommend for that. One's a folder, one's a fixed blade. They're made by the same company. I own both. Uh, the Buck 110 and the Buck Woodsman. The Woodsman is a, a, is a belt knife, uh, straight blade, you know, fixed blade, and then the 110's folding knife. I have a Buck 110 that I think I bought when I was 13 years old. I still have that knife. It's still a great knife. And I'm in my 40s. So that's all there in the show notes if you want to take a look at it. Remember... You can always support the work I do on TSP when you shop on Amazon, not just by clicking on these links, but just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com when you shop on Amazon, and you'll just be on Amazon and shop. And I have a clever idea. I might start doing it next week. I've had some people email me and, and ask me about different versions of this. I might change where T-SPAS goes every day going forward, just to a different item on Amazon, something I bought or something I noticed the listener bought, um, just for fun. Just so every day, you could still just search for Amazon Shop or whatever you want, but you'd see something different every time you showed up. I could go into my back orders and just pick something. And I can't see that you ordered. Like if, if let's say, Tom Smith from Mayberry, Florida orders uh, a, a Tritium uh, military compass. I can't see that the guy in Florida did it, that Tom Smith did it, that anything. But I can see that that item was ordered that day. So what I might do is just every day in the morning when I'm setting stuff up, I can really easily change where T-SPAS goes to. And if you think that would be fun, let me know. Because if people don't care, I'm not going to take that. It's you know, it's an extra two minutes a day. But it, if no one cares, then it's not worth the two minutes. So I'd like to know if you kind of like that. Because I could put stuff there that's prep-related. And sometimes I could just put stuff there that I or my wife ordered. Just for the hell of it. Like, you know, something we ordered for the kitchen or something like that. Just just for fun. Uh, also, the other way you can support me, join the member support brigade. I need your support that way. That's what makes this show possible. It really is. It's what pays the bills. Uh, people think that, like, you know, how many bills could there be for a podcast? Guys, my server bills $1,000 a month. 
my server bill just to be able to provide this content to this many people, especially with eight years of it on demand, 100. Think about that. Eight years of the Survival Podcast. Every episode that's ever been made is available on demand for free. And it takes that kind of robust hosting to do that. You know, I got, I got away with $50 a month hosting for like a year, and then I blew that up. So uh, if you well, always want the show to be here, become a member, and then get discounts on the over 70 companies I have discounts for you for and get your money back. And that way it's a win-win-win. Everybody wins. Speaking of everybody winning, that's what the TSP Business Directory does. It's a triple win. Uh, I get to provide a platform for you guys. Our entrepreneurs in the audience get to reach you guys, and you get to find them. Today's supporter of the Business Directory at tspbiz.com is Soden Home Products. They offer convenient automatic foam soap dispenser, perfect for your bathroom or kitchen. You have the ability to mix your own soaps, saving you money. This is another business owned by an MSB supporter. They are offering a 10% discount. Simply copy and paste the URL off their listing in the directory and use the code TSPBiz10 to get the discount. And you can find the link to them in the business directory. And they sent me one of these things. Pretty cool. You mix up a little soap, a little water, and you know that foamy soap you wash your hands with in your bathroom or on your, your sink or your kitchen? Yeah, you just make, mix your owns up out of you know soap concentrates that you probably have. Um, and it does save money, and it works great. Battery-powered, you t just touch it, and pfft, a little foam comes out, kind of like you had a nice you know bathroom at a nice hotel or something like that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see an audience member selling something like that. So that brings us to today's um, today's closing song. And uh, I'm going to play a song by... I don't think I've ever played this guy on the air for you before. And I, I like a lot of his music, but not all of it. Um, he's a bit folksy for me in some ways, but he's got a few that were big hits. And, and this is probably the biggest city ever had, Rocky Mountain High. And I, I play this today because you know we talked about hiking and... I talked about going to the wilderness at all today, and it, it, it brings you back, you know. Talking in the beginning of the show about the old man of the mountains, you know, basically falling to the ground and what have you. Um, man, you know, you just, you just remember where you were. Well, I always liked this song. And a few years ago, Dorothy and I did a survival expo in Denver, and we took a couple extra days, and we drove up to Estes Park, Colorado. And, you know, we went to, there's, man, if you ever get a chance to go to Estes Park, guys, go to Estes Park. It's just beautiful. And it was elk season where the elk are bugling and rounding up their harems. And we had elk, you know, walking through the town and bugling at trucks and cars and trying to fight. One, guy, one elk was trying to fight a car. And there's a lot of stuff about that trip I remember. We found this this gift shop where I was, I was sitting there looking at letters hand-signed by people like Andrew Jackson. And just, I mean... I just paged through this, like, it's like the old poster things where you, they're all behind plastic, and I'm just, you know, all these different historical figures from our founding that was there, incredible food, incredible beer, and Rocky Mountain National Park. So we decided we are going to drive in the park and all, and we'd done that, but we thought, you know, it would be great if I could actually, because usually I drive when we're doing things like that, if I could actually see everything. So we found out about these things they call Jeep tours, and these Jeeps are like these modified Jeeps that like 20 people can sit in, and you're like out over the edge, and you can see everything and all. And we, we take this tour of Rocky Mountain National in this Jeep. We take different stops, and we walk down little different places and stuff like that. We get up to this observation post at like the highest peak uh, that you can drive to anyway. And there's a gift shop. We spend some time there. We get back in the Jeeps. And at this point, you've kind of done all the cool stuff. You're just going to go down the backside and back to town. And uh, as we're, we're heading around the corner uh, to come down the ridge, the guy comes over to the PA on the Jeep and says, I'm going to play this song for you now. And he tells the story of a young man 
that came to these very mountains and was being quite unsuccessful with himself as a songwriter and spent, I think, a week making the same journey we had just made in a couple hours. And he wrote this song as he comes down the backside of these mountains like we were doing just now after having that experience. It actually you know, changes his name to John Denver and releases, changes his whole history as a songwriter and, and what have you. So when we came around that corner, it was the most gorgeous mountains I've ever seen in my life. I, I, I just looked at it and was like, this is proof to me whether you believe it or not, this is proof to me that there is a God. That there is not only this much beauty, but we as beings have the ability to perceive it for the beauty that it is. In fact, if there were nothing to observe that beauty, I don't know that it would have any value. I'm not saying ecologically, if there were no humans, it might have value for animals and stuff. But with the beauty itself, the aesthetic quality of beauty even exists without someone with our level of comprehension to comprehend it. And we listen to the words of that song, and uh, I look over and I see like a tear running out of my wife's eye. I just let it be because I knew what it was. It was just taking it in. And it was, uh, it was like I'd heard the song many, many times before, but it was almost like I'd never actually heard the words. Or I'd heard the words, but they, I'd never... I, the, the, I, I listened, but I didn't hear. I, I could tell you what the words were, but I didn't hear them. They didn't go in, and they went in this time. And I'll always remember that. And I'll always remember the white rocks in Vermont that I can go back and see, and I'll always remember the old man of the mountain that I can only see in pictures, but I have a picture in my photo album that I took on that walk, and that's there. And that's kind of an important message for you guys at the end of today's show. Take it all in. Make the most of your dash. Some of the things you think will always be there may not. And the ability for you to go see the things may change. People, we have emergencies and disasters in our lives every day. We don't have to have the shit hit the fan for the whole world or the state or even your neighborhood for it to hit the fan for you. Get out on those trails. Take those walks. Take your kids with you. Have those special moments. Because preparedness is about making sure that we can continue to do things like that, not just making sure that we'll wake up and still be alive tomorrow. It is the first rule of survival is wake up alive tomorrow. But the second rule is wake up alive in a way that's worth living. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. He was born in the summer of his 27th year. Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains His life was far away On the road hanging by a song But the string's already broken And he doesn't really care It keeps changing fast It don't last for long But the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky The shadow from the starlight Is softer than a lullaby Rocky Mountain High 
Rocky Mountain High 